Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NoCo FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... And welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and leading your best feminist life. I'm your host, Adrienne Vandervalk, and today we are diving into part two of our three-part series on feminism and sobriety. And I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who reached out to me after the first episode with Holly Whitaker aired. I got a lot of messages, both of support for me and my sobriety, And also a lot of you shared your own stories or reached out to say how inspired you were by the conversation with Holly. So thank you. That means a lot. And I hope you get just as much out of today's conversation. For part two of this series, I spoke to a woman named Nina Sarhan, who is known on Instagram as the Sober Feminist, S-O-B-R with no E. As the Sober Feminist, Nina shares messages about sobriety and resistance, encouragement and community. Sometimes her account is lighthearted, and sometimes things get very serious. And before I go on, I want to issue a content warning for this episode for sexual assault and suicidal ideation, because both of those things are part of Nina's story, and they are at the heart of what we focused on in our conversation. My drinking ramps up significantly when I went abroad for the first time, and I studied abroad overseas in Israel. And at that time... I don't say I was politically aware at all, but I was only really focused on drinking and partying and going out. The first thing that really, you know, changed me as a person was when I was sexually assaulted over in Israel. And after that event, my drinking ramped up to kind of another level. Um, It was more on the terms of like three or four times a week after that first assault. And then I came back that same year And I had an internship at the State Department in Washington, D.C. And that same summer, only a few months later, that was the summer that I was raped by somebody that I knew. Um, And so those two events kind of put together really, now that I'm sober, I can really reflect back and look at those as core events that kind of shaped my drinking, shaped my habits around drinking, shaped the things that I would do when I was blackout. And it really wasn't until I started to find my voice that I was able to realize that I even A, had a problem or B, realized that there was this significant link between feeling empowered in who I was, empowered in the things that happened to me, empowered like as a survivor, sobriety was something that I could use to my advantage and kind of like, you know, people say it can be a superpower. And so it wasn't until I found that direct link between activism, between feminism, between feeling empowered in myself and being able to talk about the links between my drinking and the links between sexual assault and drinking in general that I was able to start to heal. Nina quit drinking pretty young. She's 27 now, but things got bad enough during the years she was drinking heavily that she saw the writing on the wall. We didn't get too deep into her story during our interview, but she's written very honestly about it online, including the time she found herself Googling how to kill yourself without upsetting your family. I'll link the essay she wrote about it in the show notes. 
But the way she talks about her decision to quit is really useful, I think, because it wasn't the dramatic event that lots of people who question their drinking wait for. In fact, it was the complete opposite. There was nothing special about the the first day that I decided to get sober or anything. There wasn't like a realization. There was no like, quote unquote, rock bottom. But there were many moments of feeling tired. There were many moments of feeling tired that I woke up with the same anxiety after drinking a bottle of wine. There were so many tired moments of like not knowing what I did when I was blackout drunk. And so many just like I was just so tired of feeling like I had no purpose and that like the things that had happened to me in the past, I was just bound to live with them and drink them away. And that's exactly what I was doing. And I was just tired of it. And I woke up one day um, last May and I was just kind of done. Um, And ever since then, my like my life has really changed in the best way possible. It's also been very difficult because, you know, as we know, like alcohol is great for covering trauma and for burying it really deep down, having to go through and relive the trauma and talk about it and feel it like really feel it is so difficult. But there are more difficult things, you know, like get blacking out every weekend, I think is more difficult not knowing what you did or what you said the night before to your loved ones, like that's more difficult to me than getting sober was. For Nina, like for most people, getting sober was a process and it took some time for her to figure out how it would work for her and what tools she needed to stay sober. What I think is so compelling about her story is how clearly she sees the relationship between alcoholism and sexual trauma and how committed she is to breaking through the stigma and the shame that exists around both of these experiences. I asked Nina to talk more about how alcohol and being sexually assaulted were linked for her, and how that link became so central to her identity as a feminist. It was October of 2018, and it was when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court. And before that moment, I had not felt like I could really talk about my rape and my sexual assault like as openly as I do now. I was very careful. It was more of a taboo that something I felt I had to be ashamed of, even though I have had no control over those events happening and it wasn't my fault whatsoever. I still felt so much shame. And then Christine Ford stepped forward. And she told her story in front of the world. And that was the bravest thing I've ever seen anybody do, ever. Like, I could cry talking about how brave she was. Um, But it wasn't just her, you know. Hundreds of people, thousands of people, talked and told their stories, whether it was on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. I started seeing people around me, my friends, my family, talk about things that had happened to them. And then I took to the streets one day and I left work and that was the day that I was arrested um, with hundreds of other women, hundreds of other survivors. And we took over the Hart Senate building and we sat down and it was there was so much energy in the room that day, so much healing energy, so much anger, so much sadness for the things that had happened, not just to me, obviously, but just like really awful things that were a pattern of, you know, assaults. And it just is so common 
so common that the thing that Christine was speaking about on national television was the thing that had happened to almost every single other person in that room. But being arrested really directed my anger into something that I could feel changing inside of me. And for the first time, like I felt anger in a way that I didn't want to drink away. Like I didn't want that feeling to go away because I felt like it was healing in some ways. And people talk about anger a lot as a waste of energy, you know, as something that you need to let go of, you know, the whole find peace with yourself movement. And there is something to be said about, you know, being all Zen and being able to let go of, you know, really harsh trauma and really those things that keep you up all night with anxiety. And I think there's a difference between holding on to it so tightly that it kills you. But things like rape, they they tend to define you in a way. And whether or not people let it define them, I don't think is necessarily their choice anymore. After going through it myself, I think it it does whether or not you want it to. And I think what's up to survivors is how we decide to use our anger and how we decide to heal. Anger has been the best propelling force for me to stay sober, to stay active within this community of survivors, and to keep pushing for my voice to be heard, and to start talking more about the link between sexual assault and alcohol, because both of the times for me that I was assaulted, I was drinking, and we have to figure out a way to talk about that link without blaming victims. There is a link, and, you know, it's from every room, from the Hart Senate building with hundreds of survivors, many of them also involved alcohol, you know, but also in my AA groups, every single person in my AA groups has raised their hand because they've been assaulted as well when they've been drinking, and so... There is such a clear connection between sexual assault, between rape, and between addiction and alcoholism. And especially for women, there are so many other women that just by starting this platform, I've been able to connect with that have been through similar things as I have and have found that their drinking was covering up actually dealing with these traumatic events. And that's exactly how it was for me. I was drinking to cover up the things that had happened to me to, to stop these feelings of shame. But when Christine came forward, I, I found an option other than shame. There was an option for me to feel angry. And through that anger, I was able to connect with people. I was able to hear my voice. I was able to actually believe for the first time that that wasn't my fault. Like most people who decide to get sober, it took Nina multiple attempts before it really stuck. But tapping into her anger and getting really clear about where the responsibility for her assault belonged were game-changing before and after experiences. Even though she had some starts and stops after that, things within her had shifted. And it wasn't just her realization about her own alcohol use and trauma. She also started looking critically at our cultural denial about the links between sexual assault and rampant alcohol use in general, and how our refusal to talk about these links keeps so many people in hiding and sick for so long. That's where I see 
such a connection between feminism slash just talking about sexual assault and talking about rape and dismantling rape culture is this it's the same thing as why I try and more and more <laughs> through my sobriety try to be more and more open about hey I'm Nina and I'm an alcoholic I'm identifying as an alcoholic and even if it's a shitty word like I would rather call myself an alcoholic and be open about my addiction and because I know that somebody else will be like, oh, shit, I'm an alcoholic, too. But she said it, so it's okay. And it's the same thing when people talk about their rapes and talk about their sexual assaults is, oh, that happened to me, too. And it wasn't your fault. And it's not my fault, either. They say the opposite of addiction is connection. And I've never heard a truer statement. And that's why I, I try so hard to be open about both of these things. The first question after you're raped is always, how much were you drinking? Were you drinking? You know, it's not your responsibility as somebody who drinks or not drinks to get raped. It's the person who is taking those actions. It's their responsibility not to rape you. And so we have to get to the point where we understand that you cannot consent under the influence and that we also understand that no matter what you're doing, whether you are unconscious or fully present, that that requires a enthusiastic yes for it to be consent. And that those questions of, well, what were you drinking? What were you, how much were you drinking? Are truly just asking the victim to re-examine their behavior in order to not get raped. And so it is, it is tricky when, especially when you are a newly sober person and you're looking back on these moments that have really defined you as a person and your own alcohol use has been a part of those moments. Nina and I talked a lot about the fact that when it comes to sexual assault, alcohol is often a variable. And when it comes to alcohol abuse, sexual assault is often a variable. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the tremendous amount of tension in this conversation about alcohol and sexual assault. The narrative that creates this tension often follows this victim-blaming line of logic. If a victim hadn't been so drunk, she wouldn't have, quote, put herself in a bad situation. If she had kept her wits about her, she would have communicated more clearly or been able to fight off the perpetrator more effectively. I have a lot to say on the topic of how women are taught they should and shouldn't drink and what those messages mean when a night of drinking ends in an assault or even in a consensual encounter that you would not have consented to sober. Sarah Heppola has a great article about this. I'll link it in the show notes. But I really want to break this putting yourself in a bad situation narrative down a bit because it's missing a few key elements. First, it is the case that perpetrators go to places where they can find victims who are vulnerable, accessible, and less credible than they are. This is established based on years of study of how sexual perpetrators behave and how they describe their own behavior. So the idea that women should know better than to, quote, put themselves in danger completely ignores the fact that dangerous people look for and orchestrate scenarios that give them access to victims. So essentially, this narrative tells us that women can never be intoxicated, can never go to parties, can also never be alone in public or alone with another person. That does not sound like freedom or liberation to me. We also tend to downplay or mischaracterize the intoxication levels of the person perpetrating the assaults. 
When I was researching this episode, I was surprised to find out that on college campuses, about 43% of sexual assault events involved alcohol use by the survivor, while 69% involved alcohol use by the perpetrator. Now, do I think that people do stupid things that they wouldn't normally do when they're drunk? Yes, I can say from experience, absolutely. But sexually assaulting someone is not the same thing as texting your ex or TPing a house or stealing a traffic cone. And our culture has a massive double standard when it comes to this, where the victim should be more careful, but the perpetrator can't be held responsible because they didn't know what they were doing. We know that alcohol makes people more aggressive and that heavy drinkers often have antisocial personality characteristics that make them more likely to be perpetrators. We hold drunk people legally accountable for getting behind the wheel or destroying property while they are intoxicated. So why, when it comes to sexual assault, do we have so much trouble seeing this? When we ask ourselves, what can we do about sexual assault? The party line has always been to reduce drinking, and yes, that would probably help. But here's a radical idea. Hold people accountable. I worked on a rape crisis line for about six years when I was in my 20s. And survivors who had been drinking at the time of their assault would often call and say they felt like what happened to them was their fault. I was trained to ask them, if you saw a drunk person at a party, would you rape them? Even if you were drunk too? The answer is always, of course not. And by flipping the scenario around, we can see that there really isn't as much of a gray area here as people would like us to think. And if someone is so intoxicated, that the line between whether they raped someone or didn't rape someone is a gray area to them, that person needs to be held accountable, just as we would hold a drunk driver accountable. Okay, back to Nina. I try so hard not to blame myself for these things that have happened because I was drinking, but I always go back to that it doesn't matter that I was drinking, that consent is consent. And I think that's what we really have to open up like a national conversation on. Um, and that's where I really see this space of like sobriety and feminism, a real need for it, because there are so many women who have been sexually assaulted. There are so many women who are addicts and alcoholics. So where can we connect? Where can we find that connection? Where can we help each other heal? One of the toughest things about being a sober person in an alcohol crazy country is that most people we're directly surrounded by with are not sober, whether that's our spouse or our friends. And so having that place to go, whether it's on Instagram or Reddit or AA, um, they're all places. They are all communities where you can feel empowered to DM somebody and connect with them just like you would at a group meeting. I think that the, the most important thing that and that I've found that connects the two is feeling empowered to not hide the fact that I'm an alcoholic and not hide that uh, the fact that I'm addicted to an addictive substance or that I was addicted to an addictive substance. The thing that I'm trying to do this year in 2020 is be more open about being an alcoholic on a regular daily basis and be more open about being a rape survivor on a daily basis because of that connection in feeling empowered in those identities and be, and what comes from feeling empowered, whether that comes in the form of anger um, at alcohol, um, which I've definitely felt, anger at 
my rapist, which I've also felt, and using those that anger to write a book, to create a story, to I mean, Chantel Miller said it best, like, look at the things we do when we when we believe survivors. Books get written, laws get changed. And I think feeling empowered is such a huge part of that and owning those identities that may have not been identities that we would have chosen, but figuring out how to live our lives with these things that have happened to us. After she got arrested for protesting at the Hart Senate office building in 2018, Nina got the resistance bug. She joined demonstrations organized by Demand Justice and the Center for Popular Democracy, including a protest outside a Federalist Society dinner where Brett Kavanaugh was speaking about a year after his confirmation. The group mounted a huge screen and broadcast Christine Blasey Ford's testimony at full volume. They blew rape whistles at the attendees as they went inside. It was intense, Nina says, being face-to-face with people who supported Kavanaugh who were lining up to have dinner with him. Nina is quick to point out that many of the demonstrations she participated in are organized by women of color, and she's conscious of the ways her experience as a white woman positions her within this movement. Being part of these intersectional feminist organizing spaces is important to her, not just politically or intellectually, but as an ally and as a woman in early sobriety. I went home without the feeling of wanting to have a glass of wine. And that anger truly took the place of any craving for alcohol. You know, it really fills that hole. Addressing the trauma through anger is a way of healing. It's not the only way of healing. And, you know, they're definitely a huge fan of therapy and all of that fun stuff. But anger can be so healing. And protesting is one of the biggest ways that I've found have been those milestones for me and milestones that I need. I need to check in with my fellow survivors. I need to go get angry every couple months. At least right now, for me in early sobriety, that's what that looks like. And whether that takes the form down the road, I would love to go to law school and figure out how to harness that anger into a little bit more of an eloquent speech. But Right now, that's what keeps me that's what keeps me sober, to be honest with you. That's what keeps me feeling like what I'm doing is the right thing for me and what's healthy for me and what's good for my soul and healing me. The best thing I can say to other people who have people in their lives that don't quite understand whether it's sobriety or feminism or whatever whatever thing that you're doing that is healing you, you need to do what's best for you. And so whatever people say to me at this point doesn't quite matter because I'm very, very comfortable with what I know my feminism to be doing. And I'm very, very comfortable with sobriety and how healing it is for me and how I know without a doubt that being sober for the rest of my life is the only way that I'm going to have a good and beneficial life. Nina has a lot of tools in her sobriety toolbox. Her sober Instagram community is a big one. So is AA. She loves Quitlet and has found a lot of support in the Reddit subthread backslash stop drinking. She also goes to therapy, loves coloring books, and, and I've heard this from other survivors actually, loves true crime podcasts. Like in my conversation with Holly Whitaker, Nina emphasized that the one-size-fits-all approach to recovery not only isn't helpful, it can be a significant barrier for some people in the beginning of their recovery journeys. 
I wish more people understood that everybody recovers differently and that recovery looks different from for everybody. And what might work for one person going to AA and going to meetings every day might not work for somebody else. Um, and people who have been through sexual trauma or, you know, especially childhood sexual trauma can be an even tougher thing to address. And that may need a whole new rediscovery of that connection um, and how to talk about it and how to really unpack it in a way that's healthy for you. And AA might not be that place. And I think we need to all, as a sobriety community even, help each other realize that we all don't recover the same. And that for women, feeling empowered and being able to not feel ashamed around these events that have happened to us, whether it's sexual trauma in nature or not, the shame is the, is the thing that's the same. Um, whether it's shame in feeling like you can't get sober or shame in these events of themselves or shame in the things that you did when you were drinking, the shame is the thing that ties it together. Nina is currently doing research for a book she wants to write about the connections between sexual assault, feminism, and sobriety. She's thinking about law school and about a career path that will allow her to use her experience and become a fierce advocate for assault survivors. Right now, though, her focus is on being a conduit for connection and a messenger to other survivors and problem drinkers that our anger is justified and that the message that we have to let it go isn't always right, but that we don't have to point our anger at ourselves. When we can realize that we are not alone, those are the first steps in you know, telling the shame monster to fuck right off. And once we can, you know, start to rid ourselves little by little of the shame around drinking, of the shame around sexually traumatic events, that's where the real healing can take place. That's when you can really start digging into what happened and start feeling like it's okay to talk about and it's okay to be open. And through that is really where we can do some true healing. We tend to think of sexual assault as something that happens mostly on college campuses and mostly perpetrated by cis men against cis women. And that does happen a lot. But it's important to remember that anyone who belongs to an identity group that experiences higher rates of poverty, stigma, and marginalization is at higher risk of both sexual assault and addiction. And because trauma and addiction go hand in hand, this can wind up creating a cycle that is even more difficult to get out of if you have limited support or resources. Sexual assault happens to queer people, and it happens within queer relationships. Sometimes it's a hate act. 47% of transgender people are sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. And these numbers go up when you drill down by race, with native trans people experiencing the highest rates of sexual assault. It's also worth noting that the shame and social stigmas that prevent women from coming forward about being assaulted also prevent men from coming forward. It is estimated that the statistics on sexual assault perpetrated against men and boys are underreported by up to 90%.
So this is another example of why an issue and a conversation that is largely the purview of feminists is something that really affects everyone. And because the vast majority of perpetrators are men, we need men to get involved, to speak up, and to take action if this is going to change. So men, if you're listening, please go to the show notes for this episode. I have some resources linked for you here as well. Thank you all for listening today. I know this episode was not an easy one, and I want to express my sincere gratitude to Nina for being so open and so transparent about her story. Find her on Instagram at The Sober Feminist. That's the S-O-B-R Feminist. I hope you'll join me in two weeks for the last episode in this series when I'll be speaking to Jocelyn Harvey about her book, Recovering the Home, and how we can help change our relationships with alcohol by changing our surroundings. If you're not already, I hope you'll follow Feminist Hot Dog on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference for small podcasts when people download the episodes. As always, our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Until next time, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.